Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. Good to be with you. And uh, again, for, first and foremost, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I hope and pray that today is a day of joy and rest and breakfast in bed. So we are thankful for you. Um, as we continue in our series in Acts, we are in chapter 2, and we come to uh, what is uh, a very important chapter in the book of Acts, but a very important chapter in the book of the Bible as well. And so um, I'll be reading selected portions of it uh, from the entire chapter, which you have printed in, in its entirety in a bulletin. Uh, but l- let us give our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning, uh, found in the book of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and in it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my, my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning that you would take um, what is complex and make it simple to us, that you would take what I confuse and make it clear to us at this time. Uh, Be with us Give us your spirit, teach us, open our eyes and our ears that we may see things otherwise we could not. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, as some of you might know, this is an election year, and as such, it is hard to get away from hearing about it with uh, such things like cell phones or TVs even. But as you know, this didn't used to be the case Um, until even the 1960s. People in America, up until that point, as far as elections were concerned, rarely got to see presidents uh, or even those candidates that were running for office. Now, you might have caught a glimpse of those uh, folks as uh, maybe you were able to get a hold of a newspaper. Um, And if you were lucky, maybe the president was traveling by train uh, into your town and you might have caught a glimpse Uh, as the car was moving by. Some of you might be recalling uh, Harry Truman's famous whistle-stop tour in 1948, where he traveled over 31,000 miles and gave 352 speeches on that tour. That was the Facebook and Twitter for 1948, if you happen to be near that route. But newspapers and the radio, if you had one, as I said, were the only way you saw or read about the president, which kind of seems... Nice, considering the overexposure of information that we experience today. It wasn't even until 1960 when what is considered the first televised presidential uh, debate between Nixon and Kennedy took place. But because of that, and as I said, up until technology brought the White House and politics to us by our phones, the president and all hopeful candidates were what I would phrase were localized to the White House. That is, you had to actually go to, go to Washington, D.C. if you were going to see the president or perhaps meet him, no promise there either. But as technology has changed, for better or for worse, 
presidents, hopeful candidates, they know what they come to you. They are no longer localized, as it were, to the White House. They are accessible to all in one sense. You might say they actually live with you in your phones, which you keep on you at all times and can never turn off. Well, why do I talk about this? Well, this morning I want to suggest that something similar is happening in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, which is this unique and one-time event as part of the continuation of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus gives us his spirit after he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. That is, up until Pentecost, God had been what localized, if you will, to one people, to one nation, by a spirit. If you wanted to meet with him, you had to go to the temple, as it were, in Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter 2, God does something different, but it's something that he's promised all along. God comes to us by his Holy Spirit to live in us as his new temple, to unite us in him for gospel mission. And the purpose of this is to give us, uh, his believers, our believers, Christians today, a new life in him for the sake of the nations, for the sake of mission. But for this to happen, God wants to change us by his gospel, which is why gospel mission is first something God wants to do in us in order to unite all of us in order to send us out for his mission. And that is really the one thing that I want you to leave with this morning. So let's look at those three things. God has come to be with us by his spirit God has come to live in us by his spirit, and God has come to unite us by his spirit uh, with our time remaining. So we'll take that first one. God has come to us by his spirit. As you may or may not remember from last week, Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, which is part one of the Luke Acts um, uh, series, um, and at the beginning of part two, uh, which is Luke, or <laughs> the beginning of Acts, we looked at last week, which is part two of um, of the continuation of Jesus' ministry, according to Luke. Jesus tells the disciples two things. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem and tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, what is the Holy Spirit? When I use the word Holy Spirit, I'm talking about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, as Paul calls in Romans uh, 8 9. It is the third member of the Trinity. This is what the Holy Spirit is. But why does Jesus tell them, and why does Acts tell us, or why does Luke tell us twice, both in his gospel and here in, in the beginning of Acts, to stay in Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem? Well, if Jesus is going to be giving us his spirit, why can't that happen anywhere? Well, it can, but Jesus wants them to stay in Jerusalem because of what time it is. And what time is it? It is the Feast of Weeks, right? Or you know that. <laughs> What's the Feast of Weeks? Well, the Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits, is what took place 50 days after Passover, or what we celebrate as Easter. That's what Pentecost literally means, 50 days. And guess what else took place 50 days after Passover? Well, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments of Israel at Sinai. So you can imagine this was a huge event for Jews that only at the Jerusalem temple could Jews attend the special sacrificial services that would take place during that time, which means that Jews and proselytes, which are non-ethnic Jews who converted to Judaism, 
right? All, from all over the world, they're coming to Jerusalem, as we read here in Acts chapter 2, for the festival to celebrate the giving of the law of Sinai and this feast of weeks. And Jesus wants his apostles to wait there in Jerusalem at this place for his spirit to be, to be poured out so as to run parallel to these special events. That is, just as the law was given to Israel at the foot of Sinai, right, and made them a people and gave them a new life, so will God's Spirit do the same, but to the nations. So as chapter 2 begins, the disciples, now apostles, were all together as we read here in one place, and then suddenly, as the text says, they experienced what we might call a sensory explosion, They hear and they see and they feel the presence of God as the Spirit is poured out over them in this room. Look at the text there, beginning in verse 2, says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and it rested on on each one of them. Now what is happening? Well, what is happening... Is what I suggest, what I want to suggest to you is that God is coming to us by a spirit. Plain and simple. See, before where Israel camped at the foot of Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God on behalf of his people, God now by his spirit is coming down to them. This is Pentecost. And what this means is God is making himself now accessible to all, not just to a few. In other words, his presence is no longer localized to a specific people or place. God is coming to the nations. When we read about the sound of wind and the appearance of fire, those images are often how God's presence in the Old Testament was seen and heard, fire probably being the more obvious one. We recall God re- revealing himself to Moses from a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. But then as Israel was rescued from Egypt and was led by God through the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of fire. But what is it that fire, what is it that this fire that, that Luke is describing is actually doing? It is what resting on those there, on believers. In other words, God is coming to them. And this means he is making himself accessible to us in ways that he hasn't before. In the Old Testament, God's presence, as we said, was localized to one people, to one temple. Now, I'm not saying God was limited. Let me be clear about that. What I am saying, though, is that God chose to make himself known and to be present to one people, Israel. But as we get to chapter 2, and as the Holy Spirit is poured out over the apostles at Pentecost, something has changed. God's presence is now divided, as the text says. Uh, It is no longer localized, like the temple that all of Israel must come to in Jerusalem to meet with God. Pentecost, what Luke is describing here, is the opposite. He is no longer localizing his presence to one people, one temple. He is making himself what accessible to all, not just to a few. Now, I am not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't present, right, or didn't indwell Israel in the Old Testament. He did. But what makes Pentecost different is God is no longer confining his spirit to Israel or to you becoming Jewish, if that makes sense. Pentecost is showing us that God is making himself accessible in a new and in a powerful way that he hasn't before to the world. In fact, God is coming not just to one nation, as we said, but to what? The nations. 
by his Holy Spirit. And we see this explicitly in the speaking of tongues in verses 5 to 12. Look at that with me. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. All right, so what's happening? So others are hearing the sound of the Holy Spirit, and that was, this, that was described earlier, right? And that's what brings people uh, together into, you know, this plot of, so to speak. And they were be- bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So all of these Jews that have gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks hear the sounds of the Spirit coming upon apostles, and this draws them together, as we said, to see what is going on, and they hear the apostles speaking and the native tongues of the multitudes there. This would be as if somebody who was from, uh, you know, from Germany, who spoke German uh, or Chinese, or who spoke Korean or Spanish, were to come in here now and to hear me speaking English, but actually heard me speaking to them in their native tongues. This is what Luke is describing here. And as many point out, this is an exact reversal, if you recall, of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. At Babel, mankind, what, tried to ascend to God by building this tower. So he confused their language so that the people could no longer understand each other. And he, what, he scattered them. Now at Pentecost, God is speaking through the apostles so that all completely understand in their native tongues. And verse 8 says, and unlike Babel, where God scattered the nations at Pentecost, he is, what, gathering the nations He is coming to them by his Holy Spirit. Verse 11 finishes by saying that they were hearing the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, it means, friends, that a new age has come in God's unfolding plan of redemption. An age of harvest, if you will, But not with wheat or fruit, right? It's a harvest of the nations. It's a harvest of souls. A new age where God is coming to his people in a new way. What was once localized to one people is now being brought to all people, to the nations. What was once the fear even of God leaving his disciples as Jesus ascended into heaven is now replaced with the joy and the hope of him coming to them by his spirit to gather them up. This is our first point. God is coming to us by his Holy Spirit. He is not confining himself to one nation, but will go to the nations. Well, if this is a new age, if God is coming to us in a new way, what does he want to do with us? And the answer is, God wants to live in us as his temple. And this is the second point. God has come to live in us by his Holy Spirit. In other words, where we will no longer be, uh, where, sorry, where he will no longer be localized to a temple, you, believers in Jesus, are that new temple where Jesus comes to live by his Holy Spirit. And how does this happen? By repenting and believing that Jesus is the Christ that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who has come into this world to take away its sins. As we continue in chapter 2, the comic relief 
show, comes to us in verses 13 to 15, as you notice, that some were amazed, and as they heard the mighty works of God, they, they, they were amazed at what they were hearing, but others were more um, cynical and skeptical of what was going on, and, and thought, well, these people must be drunk um, on new wine, as the text says. And then it's at this point that Peter stands up, and he says that, no, friends, they're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. And so Peter begins to tell them and answer the question that they're asking of what this all means. And he does this, and this is just so significant, by appealing not to some new revelation that has been given to him in one sense, but by appealing to Scripture, to the Old Testament itself. First, Peter says that what you are experiencing, what Pentecost is attesting to, is that these are, in fact, the last days as the prophet Joel prophesies. And what are the last days that Joel was talking about, right? Well, these were the last days marked, uh, these last days marked the new age, or what we would, some some refer to as the messianic age, that is inaugurated by what? The Messiah's resurrection and ascension. And it ends with his return. And so what Peter goes on to do is to prove to this Jewish audience that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Old Testament promised. And through both his resurrection and his ascension, the last days have actually begun. And this is being proven to us by what they are experiencing in the giving of the Holy Spirit, in hearing uh, the apostles speak in their own language. That is the new messianic age. And how does Peter do this? Well, he connects, how does he, how does he, yeah, how does he do this? He connects Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, which the apostles witness to two very important Old Testament texts. Briefly, first, Peter goes to Psalm 16, as we've already talked about this morning. And in verses 25 to 32, he goes there for the resurrection, showing them that David could not have been talking about himself When David said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, you will not see or allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. Why? Well, clearly, verse 29, because David died and he was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day, as Peter says. Peter is now saying that what David was talking about in Psalm 16 was not himself, but was the Messiah to come. Therefore, resurrection must be a sign of the true Messiah, Jesus After connecting Jesus' resurrection then with the Old Testament, David goes to another important passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, to connect Jesus' ascension to God's plan. And where Psalm 110 reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. But David did not ascend into the heavens, as Peter says, but Jesus what did. This is why it's so important, as we talked about the leadership that Jesus established in chapter 1, that these were men who witnessed Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Again, Peter is now saying that what David was talking about in Psalm 110 was not himself, but one to come, the Messiah. For Peter and the apostles, the last days would come once these two messianic events took place, both resurrection and ascension, according to these psalms. And the proof of that would be what? God's Spirit being poured out, which is what is happening now at Pentecost. This is the new age. In other words, to the question, what does this mean? As those gathered were asking, it means this, friends, that Jesus is, in fact, who he said that he was. 
He is both, as Peter concludes, Lord and Christ. The Holy Spirit being poured out, the sounds of rushing wind, the divided tongues like fire is the sign that Jesus, in fact, is who he said that he was. That he is the reigning Lord to this day. That he is the Messiah that was promised to come and will come again at the end of the Messianic age to call all believers to themselves, to bring the new heavens down uh, to, to earth where, where all things will be made new. And then Peter concludes with this. And you know what? You murdered him. You crucified him, this Lord and Christ. It's a hard turn if you're following, right? If you're listening to Peter at this point. As you're kind of piecing together and hearing things for the first time about what, what these Old Testament texts were actually talking about and, and the light bulb was beginning to come off because you've experienced and witnessed this Jesus, right? You, you've even maybe perhaps been there and you've seen his resurrection or maybe, maybe you have heard testimonies of his ascension and you're now starting to connect the dots and all of a sudden Peter comes home here with, oh yeah, this guy, Lord in Christ, you killed him. And the reason Peter is doing this is he wants to see... He, the, the point is not necessarily to prove Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that he is. He wants them to see it because he wants them to what? Be convicted of this. He wants them to begin to see who Jesus truly is, that they might repent and believe for what? For the purpose of the spirit of Jesus coming inside of them to, to, to live in them as his new temple for the sake of giving them new life for the nations. And this is what is said in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They are stuck. It is a hopeless situation at this point all of a sudden. They have heard his sermon, they have heard the gospel, and they believe and see that Jesus is in fact who he is. And if Peter were to end his sermon at this point, right, there would be no hope. But this is not the point of Peter's sermon. As they ask what can be done now, this, if anything, is what marks the new age, the point of Peter's sermon. And that is, this is the age of grace, friends. What can be done? So much can be done. You are not late, friends. You can repent. You can be baptized, as the text says, into Christ for the forgiveness of of sins. And then you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, your conviction is no longer your condemnation. Your conviction is actually your hope because these are the days of grace. Jesus has taken God's judgment for you. He has been raised from the dead. He now sins as Lord. Forgiveness is available then to all who are cut to the heart or convicted of sin, which leads to repentance and then to belief. A friend of mine tells this story early on in his marriage. He and his wife got invited by two other couples at this time to go out for the night. And as they were winding things down, they lived in a town where there was this new casino. And they thought it would just be fun and exciting. Let's go check this out. And so they all went over there. No big deal, right? We're not going to spend our inheritance. (laughs) But it comes time where everyone is ready to leave except my friend and and one of his other friends. They want to stay a little longer. And, uh, you know, so they, they decide, 
to do that. They ask that this is okay. You know where this is going, of course, already. <laughs> His spouse, my friend's spouse, agreed and, and gave him some money that was about $60 that she had actually won uh, that night. She was the only winner. Uh, and she says these words. She says, hey, have fun. Have fun. When this runs out, just come on. So long story short, my friend lost it, right? Lost all the $60. But that's not where this gets bad. He actually goes to the ATM to get more money out to order, in order to win the $60 back, right? Which he, again, loses that. And, and the reason he, you know, he's telling me about this, he does this, is because, you know, essentially his pride is not willing to let him go home to his new bride to show her that he lost the $60. And said he's trying to win it back. This is what happens, you know, when you go to casinos. Um, so he's driving home, and he's just distressed as he tells the story, but this is where he takes another bad turn. He decides, well, here's what I'll do. I'll just swing by an ATM. I'll withdraw 60 bucks. I'll go home, wake up in the morning, and when my wife asks me how it went, I'll just show her the $60. It's fine. No big deal. I'll hand it to her, and all will be well. Well, dum-dum, my friend, didn't think that his wife would ever check her bank account in the days to come, and of course she does. All right, this is just a classic newlywed story, right? She does, and she sees not only the extra money taken out, but this strange withdrawal of $60 at 3 in the morning. Well, she knew her husband had lied to her and tried to cover it up. She confronted him that night. This hurt, as you would expect, and took some time to heal and trust again, of course, and certainly no more visiting casinos. That's the moral of this story. But here's why I do tell this story, because when my friend shared it with me, and he is a Christian, he used this very word that Peter uses here. He said that once his wife confronted him about the money, it was literally as if he had been, what, cut to the heart. He knew he had messed up, right? He knew he had done the wrong thing, and trying to cover it up, what just made it worse. He was convicted, if you will. That's what that means. And not because he was caught, right? He said he was convicted because he knew, and this is what's important, he knew he had hurt the one who loved him the most. This is his wife. But what surprised him more than anything in the midst of his guilt and shame that he felt was the grace that he experienced in his wife's forgiveness. Friends, that is exactly what is happening here in chapter 2 and verse 37. Those there heard Peter's words and now saw that they had, in fact, hurt the one who had loved them the most. Jesus. And it cut them. Over 3,000 people saved. (laughs) This is what conviction does. It leads you, not because because you feel guilty about something, because it begins to open your eyes to see that your sins are hurting the one who has loved you the most. And in this sense, conviction was their hope because what? These are the days of grace. This is the new age. Jesus has taken God's judgment for sin. Forgiveness is available in Christ for all who believe. And with that forgiveness, according to Peter, in verse 38, comes the gift then, what? Of the Holy Spirit, where God, what? Comes to live in you. It's new life. It's new life. And the same is true for us this morning. Look, friends, the gospel must convict us. But it mustn't convict us just to make us feel guilty or because we do feel guilty, right? 
but because we begin to see that our sin hurts the one who has clearly loved us the most, more than anyone on this earth, more than any spouse, more than any family member. Jesus is the one who loves you more than anybody else. This is what Paul, Peter is saying must begin to happen to you. This is what cutting to the heart means, that you see how you have affected and offended and hurt the one true Lord in Christ Jesus. But the gospel doesn't just convict us, right? It heals us, according to Peter. It heals us in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. As we repent, as we believe, this then what creates the new life that the Holy Spirit is creating in us as it comes to live in us. And it's this new life that, 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 that Peter is speaking of and that is really the big picture here of how the Spirit is coming out at Pentecost and what it is going to do throughout the nations. And what this new life does, though, is it makes us want to what? It makes us want to be with other Christians. Right? It makes us want to talk about Jesus. And this actually gets to the last point, that God comes to unite us in him for gospel mission by his Spirit. See, this whole chapter ends with a new people of God sharing all things and having, uh, as verse 44 says, all things in common. And while the speaking of tongues tends to get most of the attention in Acts chapter 2, Luke thinks something else is just as important, if not more, how the gospel of Jesus has given them new life and united them together as a people. How the gospel of Jesus is, 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 is what unites his people. See, Luke records this harvest with two refrains that we will hear often and is a major theme in Acts there in verse 41 and 47. And the Lord added to their numbers, the text says, day by day, those who were being saved. We have gone from a diverse group in the beginning of the chapter, right, from all over the place, from, from the nations, as the text says, to those being cut to the heart by the gospel and now having all things in common. Are you seeing the progression here? And then one day, all of this, what was started out with 12 leaders and 120 followers, right, we now have what, up to 3,000 followers. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, one commentary points out, never had a harvest like this. It's remarkable. Of course, Jesus is doing this now through his spirit. But the best three words in verse 47 that closes out this chapter are, and the Lord. It's not, and Peter. It's not, and Mary. It's not any of those there. It's the Lord added to their number, those who were being saved. This is God's work. It is not ours. It is the continuation of Jesus' ministry, as we've been saying. He is the one uniting us in him for gospel mission by his Spirit. What Luke is showing us about this new age that is marked by the giving of the Holy Spirit, as we have been saying, is that Jesus' ministry is continuing in powerful ways. And what defines this people, this new life, who have all things in common, is no longer their ethnicity, is no longer their status, their wealth, or gender, or whatever it is, but their need for Jesus. They share in his forgiveness, and this is what unites them. They are given new desires then to live for him as his people, which will become what the new mission will look like and how it will go out. In other words, though, what unites these Christians is mutuality in the gospel. 
that all recognize that it is Jesus and it is his grace that has brought them here and nothing else, that they are the same. We are equally sinners, deserving of God's judgment, but we are equally forgiven in Christ alone by faith. This is what unites them. This is the, and this is what's true for us today as the church. This is the same thing that unites us today. So the law given to Israel back in Exodus 20 in the, in the Ten Commandments at the, at the foot of Sinai, 50 days after Sinai, which is Pentecost, was what God given Israel new life. He was saying, after being freed from slavery in Egypt, this is who you are now. This is who you belong to now. This is the beginning of the new life I have given you as my people. And the same is happening here at Pentecost with God giving us his spirit. And the same is happening today. God is, you, God is giving us his spirit. And he is saying, I want to live in you and create in you new life that is fundamentally characterized by nothing else but my grace. A grace that unites all of us in him because we are equally sinners, but we are equally forgiven through faith in Christ. It is both stunning and beautiful at the same time. And so here's my question for us as we leave here. Is is that true for us? Is that true for Fort Worth Press? That this is what unites us. That it is God's gospel and nothing else. Because what's easy to happen for the church is for something else to creep in there to unite us and us not even know about it. Maybe it is politics, given the season. Maybe it's how we school our children. Maybe it's our gender or wealth or ethnicity. I don't know. And it is an honest question, friends. Because here's what Acts is saying. If it's not the gospel of Jesus that unites and unifies us as his church, there can be no unity. And if there's no unity, friends, then there is no mission. I'm a huge fan of the Band of Brothers series that I'm sure some of you all are familiar with. And in episode two in Day of Days, it's one of the best, best episodes. First Lieutenant Richard Winter is sent, this is they've just crossed over, they've parachuted and just crossed over, and he is sent to take out these four uh, 105-millimeter um, anti-aircraft guns that are firing down on the beaches, killing American soldiers as, they, as, they, as we speak, as they speak, as, as they're talking about it. Anyways, he goes in, and, and in a sort of a, a, just a brilliant and amazing display of technical warfare, goes in and he, he, he divides these German soldiers who outnumber them, and he flanks them and destroys these anti-aircraft weapons. At one point, if you've seen the episode, he actually has the German army shooting at themselves. Where there is division, friends, there is no unity. And where there is no unity, there is no mission. Is the gospel what unites us as a church? Is it what defines us? Or are we just shooting at each other? with other things that we think we are united by other than Christ's gospel, which is why, as I end the beginning, why the gospel mission is first something that God wants to do in us. God has come to us. He has come to live in us. And he has come to unite us 
by his Holy Spirit. May this always define the church until Jesus returns. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message, and we thank you most of all as we read Acts chapter 2, that you have come to us by your Spirit. You've, You've come to live in us by your Spirit to unite us in Christ's gospel for his mission. You have not left us alone. You have not left us to fend for ourselves, and it is a work in and of itself that you are doing by yourself for your church, and you invite us to participate in this. Would we, uh, in the days to come, and, and, for, and until Jesus returns, until you take us home, continue to be a people who are cut to the heart for the ways that we have hurt the one who has loved us the most, that we may repent and be united again in his gospel of grace for us, that we may have new life in the forgiveness that he offers. We pray this for your glory alone. Amen.